Um, I'm very happy to have Melissa Thompson come, and uh, I'm delighted to have met her at Kaiser, and where she's a chaplain, and uh, she's a, a palliative care chaplain. That's half of the job. The other half is? No, that's, that's the whole, the whole job. job. So palliative care chaplain at Kaiser, and locally right here in Redwood City. And uh, she's also a Unitarian minister at the UU Church in Palo Alto. And, um, and uh, so I love that she's here for all kinds of reasons, both because who she is as a person and, um, and her experience, and also because, uh, you know, I have a long-time connection to Kaiser locally. Both my kids were born there and other connections. And, uh, and in the 90s, we used to rent the UU church, uh, parts of it, in order to do day-longs and a variety of different things. And so I have a very warm connection to that church and, and to have a connection to you, through you, back to that church is very nice. And, um, and then uh, Melissa hopefully will say more about herself, but that's about as much as I could, I know. <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> Thank you, Gil. Thank you all for having me over. I have been looking forward to this for a few weeks. I, I think I have it on. Are you? And I can I can be a little louder if that's helpful. Um, do signal me if it cuts out because I uh, yeah <laughs> I know I can be some soft spoken at times. Um, so Melissa Thompson is my name. Um, it, as Gil said, I'm a chaplain over at Kaiser here. Um, I'm a parent of two adult kids and um, living with my spouse in Los Altos, where we've lived for a long while. Um, very engaged in Unitarian Universalist world. I'm going to the General Assembly for our group next week. And I, have, uh, I went to Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley. Uh, I made that choice because I felt like it was just the right place for me at the time. I, had, I graduated from UC Berkeley with a degree of, in the study of religion in the 1980s and went to Harvard Divinity School right out of uh, undergraduate. And as a 22-year-old, realized that I've had, I didn't really feel like I had the grounding to do the kind of work that I've, I felt called to do, but didn't, didn't feel like I had some, within me at that age what I needed to, to do the work. And came back to California and married my spouse, and we have um, raised our kids and then went to Pacific School of Religion a little later down the road once I realized I couldn't not do what I felt called to do. And I did um, three years for a Master's of Divinity degree and then did a uh, residency at Stanford Hospital, and that was where I uh, trained as a chaplain stayed as a contractor there for a little while, and then did a parish internship at Mount Diablo Unitarian Universalist Church in the East Bay, uh, Walnut Creek. And then after completing that, went back to Stanford for a little while and then accepted the position at Kaiser. So I've been with Kaiser a little over four years, and I love what I do. It's, uh, I get out of bed every morning and feel like I get to hear people's stories, and that is just truly an honor and a privilege um, it's, it's just, this is a special kind of work we get to do, and um, it's, it's something I feel enriches my life in so many ways that I, I can't even enumerate them. Well, Gil asked me to speak a little bit about challenges that, uh, that are kind of common in what I face and what, you know, the work of chaplaincy, uh, some, a little bit about my approach to chaplaincy, and... Um, 
gee, did I print on the front and back? And then uh, a little bit about ethics. And I've, I brought a, a paper with me that I did for our group on kind of ethical approaches that I thought I, I brought copies for everybody thinking we could talk about that a little bit after we get underway. Um, I would also love to have this be interactive because... Um, you know, I, I, heaven forbid I sit here talking for an hour and a half. That would not be a good use of anybody's time. So I, um, I, how about before I begin, is there anything right off the bat that you would be helpful for you to know about me or anything you would like me to know about how today has gone for you so that I can, Gil told me a little about this morning's love and kindness and fellowship uh, hospitality motif that was through the morning, which is, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, would love that. So Gil was saying any interfaith issues that you would like to have in the room. Yeah. Oh, get you the handheld. Could you um, just maybe briefly explain what universal is? Yeah, Unitarian Universalism. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's boy. That's put me on the spot. Now I've got to have my elevator speech at the ready. Uh, Unitarian Universalism is a, uh, originated as a very liberal end of the Christian spectrum. And it became, in the early 1800s, more focused on the unity of God's existence. In that, at that point in time, that was the way it was languaged. So Unitarian was as the way the Shakers are, are named because of outward people looking in on them. Unitarians were kind of a name that was given to our group because we, instead of being Trinitarians, we focused on the unity of God. Uh, that happened when Emerson said, I'm not, I'm not going to continue to talk about the Trinity because I don't believe it to be a thing. And then, so there was a Unitarian church and the Universalist church. Those two churches came together in 1961. And we hold seven sacred principles that we have in common as a group. One of them that's, I think, very important is the free and independent search for truth and meaning. So we covenant in communities to learn about the world, to seek justice, to be curious, to grow, to enhance our spiritual lives and feel centered and together with others in that work. And, and kind of looking back on our kind of puritanical roots, but looking forward into the 21st century with a sense of equanimity and, and compassion that is our, our work as people. So, yeah, that's how I would language it. You ask another Unitarian and you would get a very different story, I imagine. And I saw your hand as well. Did you have a question about interfaith chaplaincy? Not yet, but I might come up with one. Okay. All right. Did I see? Yes. Would you tell me your name as well? Anita. Anita. Nice to meet you, Anita. Thank you. Um, I know a few inmates who were born into the Christian faith and are exploring Buddhism and their dif- uh, different degree of um, progress in the in the Buddhist path. Mm-hmm. And most of them seem to struggle and share with me their struggles of um, feeling guilty, mm-hmm. and particularly um, how their family is responding to, to their exploring another faith mm. or feeling like they now belong to a different faith. And mm-hmm. not being of Christian faith myself, I find it hard to um, co- give as much comfort as I'd like. Mm-hmm. And I usually say something like, you know, it's just an exploration and um, there's so many, so many things in common. I was wondering if, I could, if you would suggest something a little bit more substantial. 
that that is that's a really good question and not an easy one either because you know we don't I wouldn't know how it is to walk in those people's shoes and um, we all come from our own context so I can listen and hear their experience and abide with them in that uh, maybe not some easy I'm not going to have an easy simple answer I think the core pain is feeling. If, if, I'm, if I'm exploring something different than my family, there's probably some fear in the family that by being curious about other things that maybe I'm moving away from them, uh, that, that we're pulling our connections apart. And so if the core need of the family is to know you're going to be right here with us still, you're, you're, not, you're not telling us what we believe is wrong or bad or mistaken, and you're not going to leave us then there is a bridge there that could be made, perhaps. Uh, so I'd be asking questions about, so tell me about family stories of togetherness. How do you experience what it means to be a family? And tell me about understandings of right and wrong. Is curiosity okay in your family? Um, do your parents have a or family or however, who the family member is who's, who's having feelings about it? Tell me a little bit about how they see their own faith. Is it something that they are, have pride about or are, are, have at times explored or left or moved towards? And is that a place where you could find a connection with them in their own time of curiosity or maybe separation? And, and uh, that's also one of the challenges that I listed when I was kind of brainstorming some of my own challenges is the, the Christian understandings about salvation are, can be very hard to work with if we are not people who identify, and I'm not one, who identifies as a Christian believer who feels that my own salvation is something to do with how life will be with me for me after this human experience ends. So talking with people who hold that view is, is hard, I think. It, it takes a paradigm shift, and it takes our stepping outside of whatever our own internal story is. And so that was one of the things I brought as a case study that I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about. Um, so maybe I'll leap into that. Unless there's another question, I could ask a, a case study question. Was there any other? Um, okay. So I, had a, I used to work at doing contracting work at El Camino Hospital. My CPE supervisor, clinical pastoral education supervisor, John Harrison, left Stanford and went to El Camino Hospital. And he was trying to get a 24-7 chaplaincy program off the ground. And so he said, I'll hire some contract chaplains to cover the middle of the night and kind of have people get used to what it's like to have a chaplain they can call on when something's going on. So when it was getting to be, I would come on at 5 and then leave the next morning at 9 a.m. And uh, when I would come on at 5, it was still early in the evening. And I thought I'd be at least rounding on people and see if there's anybody who's got a need because I don't just want to sit in the room waiting for calls to come in, especially since it's a new program. They may not know what's going on. So I went around to the nurse's station and would just say, is there anybody you think could benefit from having a supportive visit, might won't have, want to have somebody to talk to, maybe has a spiritual concern going on or would be uh, wanting to have someone to be with? And the nurse at the nurse's station said, yeah, there's a lady down the hall. She's very religious. I don't know her story, but she'd probably appreciate a visit. I don't remember the exact details. I went into her room. She was alone in her room seated up in bed, looking pretty good for somebody who's hospitalized, pretty bright-eyed, and welcomed me in, said, sure, I'd love to have a visit. And the conversation almost immediately turned to, so are you, a, are you saved? Do you accept Jesus as your personal savior? 
And I don't, honestly, I don't encounter that a, an awful lot. We live in a pretty um, open area that's very secular. Many people, even if they identify as religious, certainly aren't seeking to, uh, to others to have their own beliefs confirmed. And it kind of caught me off guard. And I honestly don't feel like I did a super great job tap dancing my way through that, that particular interaction. And it has kind of stayed in my mind. I mean, this has probably been five, six years ago. So I thought that might be a place to begin a conversation. Like maybe if, if you'd be willing to turn to your neighbor for just like a minute or two and say, you know, if I had walked into that room, if this were me who had been the one to step into that space and somebody says, can you tell me, is Jesus your personal savior? What's, what do you do? What's the, what's the, how do you work with that? Um, and then maybe we could come back together in a minute or so and just... So I'll look at my watch and I'll, I'll each person say talk to each other for about a minute and then I'll tell you when one minute is up so the other person has a turn. How's that sound? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Gil. Is there anybody who uh, had a rich conversation or either, uh, ah, I have no idea that they'd willing, be willing to share, or, uh, you know, I have a pretty good one. I think, I think I'd think i try this one. Anybody got one they're willing to volunteer? She has a great answer. Ah, I'd love to hear it. Because I get sometimes. Yeah. And I go, you know? Oh, oh thank you. Button at the bottom? There? There? Oh, you got it. And I go, yeah, you know what? I love Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, or, or depending on who it is and how long I've known them, I'll say, yeah, I grew up in church, and it was so helpful and so important to my family. Excellent. And tell me about G- you and Jesus. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Love it. Yes. That's beautifully done. Thank you. Tell me your name. Beth. Beth. Thank you, Beth. That was good. But I'm curious to hear other people's stories, too. Beth, can we borrow that? Oh, yeah. Sure. (laughs) They don't know me. (laughs) You're willing to share. Yeah. Run it to the next person. Oh, thank you. Let me just add. Oh. I did grow up in that, and I know how important it is to people. And how scary it is to talk to a non-believer, you know. Yes. So people need need a certain something there. It's not just fake. But what I hear, though, is the integrity of your own story that doesn't say, "Why, yes, I am," because to me that wouldn't be the honest answer. And I'm not going to lie mm-hmm. to somebody. Mm-hmm. So then, what do you do? And that, yeah, that was a very skillful response. I, I like it. That's good. Bud. Yeah. And what what would you add? So, so my conversation partner said the last thing I thought. He said, no, why don't you tell me about that? Oh. And then I asked him, you, you, you know what comes after yeah, you so say that, right? <laughs> and he's like, yes. And I'm like, wow, yes, like that openness, that, I was, I was very oh, impressed yeah. by that. That was like, yes, like bring it on, yeah, yeah. and pull it in. So that was, uh, yeah. that was cool. 
in yeah. a world where time is unlimited, if if I knew <laughs> if I knew I had spaciousness and I could honestly sit and listen, that would be a perfectly wonderful way. And what I love about that is that it's an open-hearted approach to knowing more somebody else's experience of. Tell me more about that. Why I'll learn through this open-heartedness why that's important to you. Tell me, I want to know. Because obviously it means something to you. It's the first thing you asked me. I didn't even get 10 feet in the door. <laughs> and we had to know. I thought I saw some energy over here. We did, was there any other things you would share or offer? I just want to say thank you. I, those are great things. Yeah. They are, and I, I think I would have used a variation on what Beth did if I were doing it over again, which is why it, my first answer was kind of a, mm, uh, oh, um, <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a minister, you know, and I'm, I'm an interfaith chaplain, and I, I'm here to support you, and then it kind of stumbled into a, well, say more about what the question is, and well, how, how is this important to you? Afterwards, I thought, I left too much of a bubble of curiosity about what my story was, and instead of it becoming a visit to serve her, it became about, hmm, who are you in this room? And I don't know if I really know where... But I I hadn't rejected it outright, so it kind of left me in this limbo space that was even more perplexing to the person rather than being either beautifully curious or reassuring somehow. It was was not ideal. So Beth's response of... um, that's it's it's clearly important to you. I think Jesus is an amazing teacher. I'd love to hear more about your experience. Can you tell me about what salvation means to you? It would be kind of a, cur- a curiosity question. Would be within the first three lines, I would say, um, and then hope to become by using curiosity that it would go back to responding to her. And I think that, that also another thing that I think I get asked a fair amount is, well, what are you? You know, what's your background? And I knew somebody in my chaplaincy training who refused to share what their own tradition was because they felt like that was a disservice to the patient or the family member or whoever was asking. And and I think that just creates a, a lack of trust. It doesn't build that bridge of connection. doesn't mean it has to be an essay on one's theological statement or foundation statement of purpose or some grand thing, but a simple answer of, you know, I, I'm a member of a Unitarian Universalist congregation. How about you? And then, you know, it begins to build a, a connection rather than a separation. So thanks. That was, Anita, I appreciated your question because that got us off the ground here. Um, well, one of the things Gil asked me about was challenges. And I, I made a list kind of just over the last couple of weeks of, as they would come to me. I think false assumptions about what chaplains do and don't do is way high at the top of the list in this kind of false dichotomy of what science and religion can't coexist and in Silicon Valley, where we live in a world where science is, is God in some ways or is, is such a esteemed kind of workplace for people, to see it somehow separate from meaning-making or notions of what's outside ourselves, those things can so easily coexist, and it, it saddens me when they're seen as separate. So having to define the place about uh, exploring with people what, how they make meaning, that that's a perfectly wonderful uh, experience to have. But it's so often people presume what that means. 
The other thing I, I didn't start out by saying on my little intro piece is that I work as part of the palliative care team, as Gil said, and it's kind of an interesting subset of chaplaincy. I know Jennifer Block here is uh, among you all at times, and she may have talked a little bit about that work because she's been in a similar role in the past. The way it is set up at Kaiser and Redwood City, Kaiser, Kaiser as a whole has decided that having conversations with people as early as possible when they have a, are living with serious illness is important, that we ought to know who your people are, we ought to know how you make sense of the world, and we ought to know if, if our understanding of your medical wishes are accurate. And there is a number of different programs that are run through Kaiser that, to be truthful, are quite cost-effective as well, because when you know what somebody wants, you're going to deliver the health care they want, be it full tilt or don't, I, don't, I want comfort uh, my, to be my focus. But if we're doing what they want, what a person wants, it is, it's, it's an efficient thing to do. So it makes sense that palliative care teams have kind of developed out of this desire to support people's wellness. And um, so the palliative care teams at Northern California Kaiser are made up of doctors, nurses, social worker, and chaplains. Most teams have a chaplain but don't have more than one, but they have several nurses or social workers and several physicians. So our team has four, four physicians now. We just had a new physician start two social workers, two nurses, and me. Um, we each, the physicians work full-time positions, but the non-MDs are part-time. So I'm, I work four days a week, and I fill my other <laughs> days with many, many things involving my congregation. So I feel like I work many, many hours a week, but I'm paid to work uh, 32 hours a week. And we, do, we are requested to see patients and family members Three different ways. One is through orders that physicians can place an order and say, you know, there's, there's, I don't think they're understanding the medical condition or the disease trajectory. I don't have time to explain, but I want them to understand better kind of how things might be in the future. Um, there, there might be family, family dynamics that are a little complex and discord around how to make decisions. So orders are often, we probably get two orders a day. At, at Redwood City, which has a census of about 110 or 115 people in the hospital every day. That includes mother, baby, and emergency department and things. <clears throat> and then the second way we get orders is uh, advanced alert monitoring system that just came online about a year ago. This is to, pr- to try to stop people from having to be in the ICU. So if their lab values change drastically... Uh, it, it sends an alert to a number of different teams, social work, uh, rap, the respiratory therapists, and palliative care team, so that we make sure we are looking at pain and symptom management and just doing everything we can to support their staying uh, in an equilibrium kind of place rather than kind of falling off a cliff and needing to be either intubated or in the intensive care unit, unless they want to be and it's appropriate, and then, of course, they do, but um, we want to support them in feeling good. And then the third way we have requests is that the Kaiser Northern California, just about a year and a half ago, set up a program where they sort through the patient population of Kaiser members and look for anybody who has stage four cancer, anybody who has a diagnosis of failure to thrive, anybody with dementia, um, oh, there's a number, uh, kidney failure, end-stage renal disease. There's a number of things that get you on this master list. And anytime one of those people, we call it a registry, anytime anybody who's on this registry is in the hospital, even if they come into the emergency department, we go to see them because we want to make sure we're establishing a relationship because they're kind of the patient base that would be, might benefit from palliative care. 
So that means that on a given day, we have about 20 people in the hospital that are our people, and then I'm the one who supports their spiritual wellness. So the bulk of my time is spent doing initial consults where we get to know people, kind of get things started. Those meetings last about an hour. Sometimes in, we had one this morning last an hour and a half. Uh, talking with who the important players are, uh, making sure medical understanding's there, and then if there's spiritual needs, I, I continue to follow. And then if I'm not on a consult, people are asking questions about spiritual needs and letting me know about that, um, which I feel is, is... Some people would say, oh, that's not... As a chaplain, like when I used to just round on people one at a time and say at Stanford alone, it... It's different. It's a different kind of work than the acute care chaplaincy. Acute care chaplaincy, you have one-on-one visits with patients, generally when nobody else is around, and go pretty deep, maybe for 20 minutes, and then uh, maybe come back and wish them well. Whereas with palliative care chaplaincy, it's this whole big group. I come in almost always with a physician because we work the same hours and tend to pair up together a lot. And so I'll be having these spiritual conversations as one part of a much larger conversation that I'm, I ultimately I usually end up documenting. And it's a big chart note that we end up writing that talks about what's important to them, who their people are, what their social supports are, what their understanding of their disease is, what they're hoping for, what they're worried about. So it's, it's a little less chaplain in some ways. Uh, you know, to an outside observer, it might feel that way. And that, to me, it's very satisfying. The thing I really appreciated about it is I felt doing acute care chaplaincy was rather lonely, that I would have these incredible, sometimes really desperately sad experiences of watching somebody young come to the emergency department and die very quickly. And... You're not supposed to talk about it with your spouse. You're not supposed to have it leave the system. You know, it's healthcare information is private. And the changing of the guard would happen in the chaplains, and I'd go home, and I would feel like, okay, I'm holding this thing. And I had practices, you know, like washing my hands and my own spiritual practices that would kind of help me. But boy, I find it helpful to work as part of a group of people. And as part of the palliative care team, we always pre-brief and post-brief our consults. So before we go in, we have some objectives, and we don't hold fast to them as if they're set in stone, but we have an idea that we might be talking today about any kind of documentation that's amiss, and we might want to know how they're physically feeling and what they're worried about. For instance, that was this morning, one of the people we saw. And then afterwards, we'll come back and say, what did we learn? How was our process? How did it feel to be in the meeting? And what's our plan? So we usually go through that. And how did it feel to be in the meeting if it's, oh, my gosh, that was my grandmother? I just could hardly speak. You noticed I was quiet because I was so triggered. It was just like my family said, you know, if you're having one of those kinds of experiences, you've got people to talk about it with. And that is something that means at the end of the day, I go home and feel like, all right, I'm moving. I'm in my regular life again tonight. And that just works really well for me. When I was in seminary, we have this Midler review as part of the Pacific School religion process. And one of the things that that team of people in the review panel said is, you'll need to make sure you've got a community around you because you're somebody who appreciates having people to talk to. So even if you can't talk about patient health information, you need people to talk to. And that has worked really well for me. This position, I thought, oh, I landed in the right place for me. Um, So assumptions about what chaplains do, and then I went off on a tangent. The death-denying culture we're living in, that's a challenge I I feel like I face a lot. 
um, Franco Staseski, I imagine many of you are familiar with him in his recent book about the five invitations. I heard him recently interviewed, and he was saying he went to dinner at a dinner party in Silicon Valley, or somewhere with some Silicon Valley type sitting next to him, and he said, well, death comes to us all, and the, the Silicon Valley type who was sitting next to him said, oh, not if we can help it. You know, <laughs> kind of like, we're working on that. And, and he had a, for real? You know, I mean, it, you know, I, don't, I think it didn't leave his mouth from the way he talked about it. But this, uh, this sense of, of incredible hopefulness, like we've conquered computers, we've conquered, the, we've got self-driving cars, next thing we'll know, we, you know, we'll all just live forever. And, and, and his point in speaking was that we need people who are friends with death that remind us that death comes to us all, that bodies are, they begin, they have a middle, and they have an ending place. It can feel tragic when they're sooner than we want them to be. But it's also really life-affirming. Like, I go home every day when there's something difficult I've seen, and I think, I'm grateful for this life I have. I, I see the gratitude piece of it, and I think if we lose track of the fact that death will come to us all, we're in, we're in a dangerous place. And, and doing the work I do in palliative care, we're seeing the really sickest people in the hospital. And we often get referrals for the, ones who are, for the families who are really having a hard time coping. And about, I'd say 10% of the time, those are folks who are saying, well, what do you mean that her lungs aren't working? That doesn't compute. You can do something about that, right? We have machines. What do you mean she's not able to breathe? Well, put a tube in there and help her breathe. Well, if she can't eat, we'll give her a feeding tube. And, and then you, you go down this road and you think, well, those, those, are all, those are all appropriate interventions at times, but there is a time when all of us have to face uh, that, that may not work. And at some point, all of our things aren't going to work. So ha- being able to have conversations with people across those lines is something I, I feel like is my role on the team is to be this ally in those different positions. Um, that I've talked enough about that. Maybe I'll move to the to the fl- the sheet I brought with me. It talks, I, and I'll talk this through. I'll pass around because I've got enough for everybody here. I hope I made about twenty copies. I'll do like half each way. There you go. And I'm sorry for people who may be hearing the recording of this that it's um, that it may be. Hard to see a piece of paper, so I'll talk a little bit about what's on it. A couple of years ago when I started at Kaiser, they'd, they'd only had a chaplain very briefly who came and went, and he never got traction. And before that, they hadn't had a chaplain. So I sort of stepped into the system where ethical understandings about how to proceed, everybody's compassionate and wonderful folks, but they hadn't really thought about their the. the there were conversations happening in the room that were different flavors of conversation. And I had, a, I had a flash of, oh my gosh, this reminds me of the ethics class I took in seminary where we talked about different ways of looking at the world and we all adapt, adopt different ethical viewpoints at different stances along the way. And I'm by no means a, you know, a, an expert in ethics, but though Gil and I sit on the ethics committee together so we get to have lovely conversations about ethics... Um, so I'm not an expert. This is something I created based on material I had learned in seminary, and some of the pieces came out of some seminary notes of mine. It is my experience in palliative care chaplaincy that 
we will be asked to sit down with the family and we will be having two conversations at the same time. We'll be having a conversation that the family is having that may very well be uh, what I would label as a deontological conversation. So deontological conversations are about obligation and duty. Uh, And I'll read this a little bit just in case the recording folks can hear it. Um, The normative ethical position that judges the morality of an action based on the action's adherence to the rule or rules. It's sometimes described as a duty or obligation-based ethics because rules bind you to your duty. Patients and families, in my my perception, often start here in the dialogue. So those kinds of things, when you hear them being said, they're things like, I promised mom we'd do everything. So that's a child seeing their duty to live out this obligation. I promised my mother that I will be with her to the end and we will do everything. So I've made that promise, I will do it. Uh, We believe in miracles, we can't let her die. So I have some responsibility in here. It is my duty to protect her. You have something you're talking about that is not going to protect her. It is my duty to protect her. Um, Suffering is part of life, and if that's God will, then God knows what he's doing. So I've got to stand by my faith. My faith has said that God's got this, so I have to defend that. We have to keep this in God's world. I can't let your medical world touch it. Um, So when I hear that kind of thing being said, I often will move towards exploring how the God-believing person understands God's role in their life, how that role um, plays in their decision-making, how God works in their decision-making, if they have an important value they may be honoring. And we might respond by saying something like what was shared earlier. It sounds like your faith really guides you, or I've found that miracles can mean different things to different people. Uh, what, What would a miracle look like to you? That's especially fertile territory. Uh, and then you've got to be quiet. <laughs> I've found I, I have to ask the question and just wait for the discomfort to settle and somebody to move into speaking. Um, we can honor that they are living out their values of their faith, honor that they keep their commitments. So I see an important role of chaplains as honoring that duty that people, in that sentence, when somebody says, I have to do this, they are living out their values. And we as chaplains say to them, I see you. I notice this. It's clear that you are doing something that's very meaningful and important to you. Whether or not it matches with what all the healthcare providers are saying on the phone, like you got to get the DNR, or I can't believe they want me to try, yada, yada. We may know that as providers going into the meeting, but if the family member is still standing in, I promised mom I'd do everything, it does no good to launch into the, well, why are you asking us to do this other thing? We need to honor who they are and what their commitment is. Um, And then, um, when appropriate, we name what our duties are to provide care. So uh, physicians, I think, also have an ethical conundrum where they come in feeling that the thing that they want to offer is futile. I, I want to give you, I want to tell you I could do a surgery. I could do the vascular surgery that this person needs, but it, it's more likely it's going to kill her than it is going to do, that it's going to help. I'm duty-bound as a physician not to do a surgery, I think, would be causing greater harm than not, even though I really wish I could. So as, as providers, to see, to name into the space, if it hasn't already been said, when it's appropriate, that's never the beginning of a conversation. But the naming the, the commitment that physician has shown to their own profession to be duty-bound to protect people. Um, and then doing our best to help families find a path to honoring their loved one's wishes while standing inside a healthcare system that's often asking for decision-making that doesn't fit their values, at least initially. So that conversation, the duty conversation, is often happening at the same time as a consequentialist. 
So consequentialism, as I've got written here, is a class of normative ethical theories that hold that the consequences of one's conduct are the ultimate basis for judgment about the rightness or wrongness. Thus, from a consequentialist standpoint, a morally right act is one that will produce a good outcome. So a utilitarian like John Stuart Mill or Jeremy Bentham is one that brings the greatest good for the greatest number. So patients and families being asked to weigh less than ideal options those inside the healthcare system have, have to protect resources. We don't have 100 beds in the ICU. Everybody can't live the last part of their lives in an intensive care unit, so we have to figure out how are we going to allocate those resources. And so we may be standing in a healthcare system that wants to take this really wide utilitarian view, but we've got an individual in front of us. Um, and that families also may have a fairly utilitarian view. They may be saying, we want quality. We don't want quantity. I don't want to live forever but I have to be able to toilet myself and I have to be able to uh, recognize my grandchildren. If, if those two things aren't true, there's no quality in my life. I don't want that anymore. They may be saying things like that. So those are kinds of things that we hear consequentialist language, like um, we want to make sure mom is as comfortable as possible. We recognize we can't, we, we can't, that some things we might be choosing among aren't going to be ideal for comfort. If we're going to keep... If she's going on hospice, we don't want to keep having blood draws because those are painful. Why keep doing lab data? Because that's uncomfortable. Um, Or statements like, quality of life is really important to me and finding out what that is. So when we hear those kinds of consequentialist views, we might speak about what we can do to mitigate suffering, the benefits and burdens of the treatment options. So, So often people will come in and say, her lungs aren't doing great. What is there to... What can we do the beauty of, of having a little time to sit down is by having a, a chaplain and a physician or a chaplain and a nurse or a, a couple of people in the room. So we, can ex, we can explore what typical treatment options are so that they get to hear, oh, well, if I'm still going to recognize my grandchildren, then yeah, I want to have that medication that may be a little uncomfortable to be on. Um, we honor their desire for the best possible outcome. They're an honor that they're doing the best to choose from various less than ideal options. So I, uh, more often than I can count, have said in a room, uh, I know we're asking you to choose between pretty rotten and kind of awful. These are not great choices, and they're hard. And they're what we have. Do you have a feeling about the, the options that Dr. So-and-so has just said to you? Um, but by naming that, it also gives permission, if they're having inside their feelings of, look, I said I want quality over quantity, and yet the quality still doesn't seem really great, that I'm still going to have to make some compromises, and I'm not too thrilled about the compromises that I'm going to have to choose. Um, And then providing accompaniment and clear information is supporting decision-making. I I think that's that's an important part of how I see my role. So when these two conversations are happening in the room, I think um, I'm noticing that, that I'm hearing a provider saying, I've only got... I've only got uh, this surgery I can do. I'm not going to be able to do the surgery and the family saying, but we want to do everything. And they're sitting together, so bridging the gap by and saying, so what is everything? What would everything look like to you? Tell me more about that. And then the provider starts to get, like, you know, oftentimes it'll be one of the intensivists who's sitting there kind of having this anxious air about themselves. <laughs> like, I have 12 other patients I need to be rounding on right now, but I need you to decide. But we called this meeting, so I know I've got to be here for at least 15 minutes while you start talking so I can go take my orders and run. But beginning with the, so tell us about the everything, it, it's, it, it begins a conversation that ultimately leads to the kind of bridging. And, um, 
So I've done a lot of talking for a little while now. I, I can pause there. Thoughts or uh, questions or feedback? Curiosities? Yeah, yeah, that's true, Gail. And I, 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 I kind of brainstormed a list of um, things I notice about the medical system. That uh, my good friend Leslie Takahashi is a, a Unitarian Universalist minister, and she's going to be speaking at our general assembly next week. And um, she had, had prepared a presentation on the we have a group right now going on the commission on institutional change that is addressing kind of trying to center the margins and having a discussion well i bet there's been a lot of this conversed about at star king but bringing into the dialogue the people who've been sitting at the margins into the center and the people who've been at the center of our tradition having a little less loud voices in in uh, in our communities especially trying to privilege people of color people who are uh, people who I have um, gender identities that haven't been centered, just bringing to the center new voices. And so I was looking through Leslie's presentation materials, and I noticed she had kind of identified what our dominant culture had looked like and what our margins have traditionally looked like. And I thought, this is the healthcare system, <laughs> you know, that the dominant culture in the healthcare system looks like the kind of male dominated, perfectionist, urgent. Uh, rather individualist view that progress means more uh, belief in one's own objectivity, uh, paternalism, either or thinking like there's always got to be a dichotomy, um, kind of the more white supremacy culture that has existed in medical world for a long time and it is unpacking to some degree, but it still exists and it's it, it's there. And then people who i see chaplaincy is also having a role in speaking to the people who haven't been centered in the medical conversation and being an ally in that so they get their voices in their healthcare that's often people who um i'm naming appreciation for people who are who are uncomfortable and who are um whose time frames aren't fitting neatly into the medical picture um using collaboration and power sharing um thinking about Next generation thinking instead of right now thinking. Um, cost of more, like how much does more really cost? Because more sounds great right now, but what's more going to cost my grandchildren? What's what's more going to cost my family a year from now? Um, naming the truth of imperfection that that you know we can think of in a perfectionist like it, it, physicians are trained they either get it or they don't. You know, my my daughter's a physician. Um, and she's a perfectionist. <laughs> I feel for her. Um, she will, I hope, one day have a Buddhist practice that will <laughs> bring her calm and, and good things. Um, meditation practice would be a lovely thing for her to adopt. But this kind of either or black and white, you got to know it or you don't kind of thinking that physicians come from and people who come from outside that system embracing imperfection and knowing, eh, you try, see how it goes. Um, valuing the process and not just the product honoring difference, especially in decision-making, and people who are in the both-and kind of thinking, like, let's try to think collaboratively rather than you either can have this one or that one. Well, let's start from 
from what, let's bring all the choices into the room and see maybe there is a little of this and a little of that we can try to pull. Um, so, so that, that I just rambled again. So, <laughs> um, any thoughts on that kind of dominant culture thinking? Have other people witnessed that in their, either in their own medical experience or in, in your chaplaincy practice of either or thinking that you get a chance to bridge in your work? I had an interesting experience at doing my chaplaincy work. I, I do some chaplaincy at a hospice in San Francisco. Okay. And um, I was asked to sit with a man that was uh, progressively dying, and he, mm-hmm. it, it, it took maybe over three weeks. Um, and I would, visit, I would visit with him every week. Mm-hmm. And at, at some point, and this is, this is the, the kind of a difficult position I was in, in that I was asked to do this, and I, and I of course, I, I wanted to. Every time the medical team came in, um, the, the patient would come into some... Um, so he was in and out of consciousness. So at some points when they would come in, he would immediately react hmm. to, to their visit because to him, the medical team was... Um, really what they were providing is more, uncom- more discomfort, more pain. Mm-hmm. Every time they came in, they, they would check on some vitals and they would... And so they would ask me to step out... And as I was sitting with him for a few weeks, he gained some trust just to just every now and then he would look over, make sure that I was there. I would sit with him for two or three hours. And um, yeah, that that was a that was a very difficult position for me to be in because I don't know if I had actually if I could actually say something Mm -hmm. to the medical to the medical team that would come in and Mm -hmm. move his legs and turn them and and Mm. and since I wasn't there either. I think that the patient, the patient at some point sort of maybe lost trust in what I was there. But so that was one issue, and then another another was that he never really and and I wonder if I w- if I could have been more um, proactive about this is that I never really spoke to him about his spiritual mm-hmm. because it, during the first week to the second week I think I could still talk to him, mm-hmm. but he never he never asked, and so. I felt that it was more comfortable for me, really, to just sit there with him. But I wonder if I, if I could have been more proactive and, and to, to ask if there's um, maybe about his spiritual belief, his, mm-hmm. his faith. And mm-hmm. so there's two things that that happened for me there, and that happened over the over the course of three weeks. And I wonder if you have any. Any of your any experience that you have that that sort of the, these things happen where you're kind of asked to leave and mm-hmm. and you have gained some trust with the patient. The patient is progressively dying, mm-hmm. and but the yeah, it, it, it was it was kind of a it was kind of a very interesting interesting place for me to be because I, I really did did feel like um, I it's not much I can do. I felt kind mm-hmm. of. Uh, out of sorts, I guess. Yeah. So um, that's great. Th- tell me your name. Dylan. Dylan. Thank you, Dylan. That's, uh, thank you for being there with him. I think accompaniment and presence are way underrated in our world. And the gift of having somebody willing to just be, oh, we don't get enough of that in this world. So there's great power and meaning in that. 
And he may have had a whole lifetime of people asking him, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you, what's your thought on this? He could have said, maybe when he was more verbal, so, want to talk about something? And he didn't, you know? So you, it, it would be my perception that you're giving him the gift of presence. And he had an option to move into that in a verbal way or in a nonverbal way. And it sounded like the fact he looked at you in a, with his eyes and found reassurance in your presence, you found the pathway to support this person. And I think our guts know more about what's the right thing. You can't go wrong with caring presence and acceptance. <laughs> and um, so, so for that, I think you're, you're, you had an inner wisdom that knew the right pathway. Uh, as far as leaving the room, you know, patient health information, if you're not a designated family member who's been given, you know, uh, verbal permission for information, they, they do that. So I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. The fact that he looked to you and thought, oh, <laughs> they're going to make me move again, ouch, and that you recognized it. Um, it's also scary to talk to providers and say, hey, every time you come, he blanches and winces. I'm noticing that. Now, I know, you know, skin breakdown happens. People's bodies need to move. So I imagine there was a higher good in the, in t- the need to move him around a bit, and it still hurt. So I think I would have been caught in that, too. Of do, The first time, I, I almost certainly would not have said something. If I kept seeing it happen, I might have... I've gotten more bold with providers and said, it would it be okay if I asked you a question? I noticed something, and I don't know if you noticed it, but it seems like he winces when you step in the room. And he wasn't doing that when I was just sitting there beforehand. Do you have any... What would you think about that? Do you, do you think there's anything there? And then if they say, oh, no, he's fine, or, oh, yeah, we know, but we have to turn. We have to turn. We have to do the vitals once a week just because we track our metrics or whatever. I mean, if they gave you a response that gave you a sense of, okay, this has to happen... That's that's kind of how I would respond to that, um, but there's never just sitting there, you know. <laughs> that is doing. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Mm-hmm. Glance at my watch. So we have, we have. It's like two o'clock. I'll look at my notes unless anybody else has anything that they would reflect on. That yeah, please. Um, this might be unrelated uh, to, to, to your uh, realm of experience, but mm-hmm. I, I so appreciate uh, you, what you have to offer here mm-hmm. that um, I wanted to ask. And regarding what, what my service, one main component of my service is working with um, folks incarcerated with mental health issues. Ah, great. And I, uh, it's, it's very dear to me because of my own personal past issues with, and current issues with mental health, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, mental illness as opposed to mental health, mm-hmm. and I've been medicated before, and so to be able to mm-hmm. teach, you know, and share about, you know, the modalities of healing in terms of practice, you know, with depression and mania yeah. has been incredible for me. And it just seems to me like, whereas I heard uh, Chaplin once say that uh, prisons and jails are the last accepted prejudice in our culture. And within that realm, 
folks with mental health issues, both with the fellow inmates incarcerated and the correctional officers, are stigmatized. And I just wondered if you had anything to offer in terms of, like, you you just sound so cutting edge (laughs) with with hope and inspiration in in what's going down in our culture, Um, you know, in, in, you know, in in, in mental, in, in a... To, you know, regular hospitals. I was wondering if you know anything of to offer insights in or anybody working with people in in mental institutions and stuff. It's near and dear to my heart. Tell me your name, David. David, thank you, David. Uh, that, that when I was working at Stanford, my assigned unit was the mental health, the behavioral health uh, unit. So I led a twice weekly spirituality group in the behavioral health unit, and so. That's near and dear to my heart. My daughter's a, a psychiatrist, um, and she works in a, a behavioral health facility in New York. So, um, and I, I've asked her not long ago, like, why that path? And she said, because we love talking about mental health in our family, Mom. That's it's it's you know a place where we have family members who struggle, and um, and we're we're supportive of one another. And I think it's been a curiosity that led to her life's work. Um, and it's funny because just this morning I went to go have a blood test done so that I can go back to volunteering at Stanford in the behavioral health unit to um, go back to lead a once-a-month group there. So um, so I, I, that's something I really like and enjoy. And I think your assessment that incarceration and um, mental health and behavioral health is still so stigmatized, I would add to that addiction, but that kind of falls into the umbrella. Yeah, it's true. I, I would love to believe that's changing. I, I, a family member today named in a, a consult that she uh, lives with post-traumatic stress disorder and sees a psychiatrist regularly and was asking for resources because she has a family member who's facing um, what may be the end of his life. And I said to her, thank you. You're talking honestly in a group that includes healthcare providers and your family about mental health issues, and we need to be talking about this. The fact you're asking for the support, and we can, we can see what we can do. You know, we had some resources to offer. So we gotta, we got to be talking about it. we got to get it in the room. It doesn't have to be shot from the rooftops, but, it, it, you know, but drawing people into the conversation and making safe spaces for that. I think um, uh, The New Jim Crow is a book, maybe you've read it, about um, incarceration. M- Melanie Alexander... Have her first name right? Michelle, Michelle Alexander. Um, her work, that, that, that particular book really has changed a lot of, that was the Unitarian Universalist book of the year about five or six years ago. And so many Unitarian Universalists read it, I being one of them, and engaged in our congregations and discussions about it, and seeing the work that needs to be done. So um, I've also had a daughter who was, my other daughter, had was um, a person who struggled with, addiction and, or is a person who struggles still with addiction and was a victim of a violent crime. And so I personally didn't ever volunteer in jails because I felt like, you know what, I know what my own limits are and I, I still feel like that's an area where I appreciate it but that's not my calling because it's, I feel just a little too vulnerable still around that. Um, so I, I think we need to be talking more about it. I think the world's getting more open I do think people who have... I've given sermons on being open-hearted to the experience of people who've lived in the criminal justice system. 
I mean, we call it a justice system, but I'll tell you, it would not be my view that the, the for-profit system is one that it does a lot of justice. Um, so having public places where we can be talking about it, being within our faith traditions or community organizations, about the, because I think a lot of people are unaware of the for-profit systems that are really putting a lot of people into very desperate spaces. Um, and people who are immigrants, that is also woven in there too with the uh, detention systems. Yeah, that, that's where I'm placing my hope in keeping the conversation going. I'm not, did I answer? Do you have <laughs> anything to add to that, David? No, that's fine. No. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's a, I appreciate all of you who do chaplaincy work in those spaces. Cause that's <laughs> <laughs> Such hospitality being modeled. <laughs> um, so this is kind of to piggyback off of David's question. Um, as a chaplain, what would you do if you were faced with a patient that in their medical record um, had documented struggles with addiction or mental illness and was because of that or maybe because of how the person looked a number of reasons was getting was being maltreated by the doctors Mm -hmm. say for example the doctor said if we do this blood test and there's nothing wrong with you despite all the symptoms you're um expressing and, and say you have, mm-hmm. right, this pain you say you have, mm-hmm. you, you're getting kicked out. Mm-hmm. You need to leave immediately mm-hmm. if there's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. How would you bridge that gap between mm-hmm. patient and doctor who has already written patient off? Yeah, yeah. So bringing compassion into a system that often is lacking, um, First, I start with that physician is probably scared. They're frustrated. They have a particular worldview that I'm going to start by thinking, okay, how can I imagine myself in their shoes too? Because they, it, if I find myself labeling it and pushing it away, I now lose the opportunity to step inside those shoes and imagine what it might be like. And if I can step in those shoes, there might be a solution in there because I can be an ally to them as well and their struggle. Um, So I don't forget that piece of it too because there's obviously something going on in that person. So I think being a voice for justice is really important as a chaplain. When I was doing acute care chaplaincy, I would often see the person and then document later and I would look in their records and say, oh, there's a whole much more here that I didn't even know about. Now, because of the way palliative care works, I review charts in advance. It's more common than not that somebody either struggles with addiction or has a mental health diagnosis. I, I really, I mean, so many of us have things in our lives. You know, so, so making sure we're not going in with pre- preconceived notions about drug-seeking behavior, that's, you know, um, if I hear a physician say that, I always invite a dialogue about, say more about what, what it is you're noticing and can we set aside that judgment for a little bit. Um, yeah, so asking questions, I, I think that's... And, and being bold, I mean, all they can do is tell me no, but at least I've stepped into being an advocate for that person 
So if I see something that I see is unjust and I believe it's so, if we, if we were to assume everybody who had symptoms that they didn't understand who had a drug history was just out to get drugs, we'd be way wrong. You know, there are plenty of people who are going to face a medical thing at some point in their life who happen to have an addiction history. They need, they need attention and we need attention and support no matter where we are. So being bold, even though it's, as a chaplain too, I think people expect you not to be the bold voice. So if you are, that actually is a position of power because they're like, oh, wait, I didn't expect you to say something. So if you are, I'm going to stop and listen because I thought you were just going to be the doormat who moved out of my way, you know? So that gives us an opportunity we might not otherwise have. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a piggyback on that way? Sure, and I noticed along the lines of just being bold, I do feel like inviting the conversation and even offering like to the physician or other provider and saying like, "Hey, it sounds like you have con- some concerns about you know X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in even having a meeting? You know, I'd be willing to be That's present great. because then you offer another voice, yes. and maybe you can help with some bridge building and offering new perspective, maybe to both parties or yes. all parties involved. That's a good idea. And it may very well be that that provider has been under tremendous pressure with the way legislation in California about, well, nationwide about opioid prescribing. Now, you know, triplicate prescriptions, they have to go to a registry, they have to check a person's drug history. It's a, and I, I'm not saying it's not right, it's, it's I, I understand the meaning for it, but physicians, I think, feel like, oh, for the love of God, you're putting me through so much. And so they may be moving too fast through that. And the idea of saying, can we have a conversation, even if, if it was just to say, this must be hard for you. They might, I mean, I see myself as a chaplain to the staff, often, more, some days more than the patients themselves. It's hard. Yeah, thank you. When I was um, looking at these, you know, you're talking about conversations regarding a patient's values, mm-hmm. but what I also noticed is in the examples, we want to make sure mom is as comfortable as possible, or I promise mom we do everything. Mm-hmm. The, the values are, you know, the family's mm-hmm. values, right? Yeah. Not, not the patient's values. Yep, that's good awareness. And so... For whom, I mean, like, who, who's being, who do, who do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, who, who are we, who are we serving, who are we so questioning, is it patient, or is it daughter, who's, oh my God, I have to do everything for my mother, because she did everything for me for the last 50 years, did I? Yeah, so all of those. You're, you pick up on a good thing. It, number one, we always start with the person themselves. The, these examples that I just kind of pulled out of my own thoughts, I'm assuming that the patient themselves is nonverbal. They never completed an advanced directive. And now we're looking to their loved ones who are at the bedside and sons having a meltdown and daughters, and they don't see eye to eye. And so we're evoking uh, responses. Ideally, person speaks for themselves and says, hold the phone. I know I, you said you'd do everything, but frankly, I've had enough of this. You know, We would always go to that person and ask them their wishes. Um, and, and anybody who's over 18 should consider completing an advanced health care directive and have it on file with your medical system because 
uh, you know, that is a good way to get, make sure that the people you want to speak for you are speaking for you. If you have somebody who shouldn't be speaking for you, they, then they can't step into the dialogue because we look at those and we open every patient, we open their advanced directives and um, documentation like post forms that tell about your wishes around healthcare. So we're, we're doing due diligence in the charts and with the person themselves, but if it, in the absence of that, I will say into the room, let's imagine your mom is sitting right here in the chair and she's talking with us. We've just laid out all those things. Well, what do you think she would say? What's her feeling about that? To try to get them in the space so we're not just having it be, I've got to prove that I was the daughter. You know, mom never loved me, so now I'm going to do everything. You know? And that's not a very good reflection of this person's wishes. We're doing everything we can to avoid that. Does that answer? Yeah, it does. And then if, if um, I find sometimes that I'll walk into a room and, you know, there's, there's a, an adult child there or the child is in the bed and the parent is there. And, like, I almost feel like um, it isn't so much always the patient that I want to address or who needs being mm-hmm. addressed. Mm-hmm. It's the caregiver, or the family member yeah. that's sitting there. How do you, do you have a segue there or do you just mm-hmm. flat address? I mean, how does that work? It's, it depends on reading the room. I, I, is a lot of the work of chaplaincy. If you can do a pause for a moment, look around, look for the clues that tell you the level of anxiety, the worries, um, asking the patient directly how they're doing. The, the person I'm thinking of just this morning, 93-year-old person who seems quite at peace and is comfortable, but boy, his daughter, the one who mentioned post-traumatic stress disorder that she lives with, she was sure feeling anxious, and the son was kind of doing one of these, like... Oh my gosh, my sister's doing her thing again, you know? And so, you know, I'm seeing the, and, and one of his kids and one of her, you know, so um, the patient himself, I, I said, we're going to talk a little bit about choices and we've got, you know, the doctor's going to give an update. What would you like us to do? Do you want us to sit here together with you and uh, talk amongst ourselves? Or would you rather have a rest time and we'll go down the hall and sit in the meeting room for a little while? And he said, oh, go down the hall and sit in the meeting room. So he was ready to be free of the energy of the the daughter who's very loving and well-intentioned. And then one of the grandchildren stayed with him. And we talked for a while, 35 minutes or something, and then came back. And he'd had a rest and... um, and if I saw that happening and I had the spaciousness of time and knowing I could come back, I would try to be intentional about saying, hey, I'll be back at 3 o'clock this afternoon. If you want to take a walk around the unit or even go downstairs and get a cup of coffee for a few minutes, I would love to, and I try to make it sound like it's in service of me if I feel like they need an excuse. Of, you know, I usually try to take a break at 3 and get a cup of coffee. If you would want to take a walk down there with me, I'd love to hear how you're doing. Then the invitation's out there for them to step away for a little bit and have a debrief without violating the patient's right to say what they want and they need because the focus is supposed to be on them, but ultimately serving their family is in service of them too because the family will be able to work as a, as a unit in a system better. Yeah. Thanks. It's a great question. I appreciate it. All the, all the questions have been wonderful. It's about 2.20. I think I'm going till 2.30, so about 10 more minutes. Is there things we haven't talked about yet that 
would be helpful. Yeah, please. Um, since you work in palliative care, I know I have some confusion um, about palliative care, that it's not necessarily end of life. Is that, That's in right. fact, true? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could talk a little bit about that. And then the other question I have is, it's not super clearly formed, but how do you talk to people about pain? Um, you know, in terms of like physical pain or all kinds of pain. I'd just be curious what your approach is. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Thank you. Tell me your name, too. Oh, Joanne. Joanne. Thanks, Joanne. Uh, So um, it's palliative care. So a lot of times people hear palliative care and they think hospice. And hospice is a subset of palliative care. So palliative care is a medical specialty. It's it's, um, been around for maybe 20 years is a concept actualized in healthcare systems between five and ten years. It's really come online. The program I'm part of has been on uh, operational for seven years. Um, it's a newer subset of medicines, as distinct from geriatrics, specialized in pain and symptom management. It is for people who are, it used to be, we used to say people with life-limiting illness, and that could be defined as I have COPD and I can't do my grocery shopping anymore. That's a limitation. Now we talk about people living with serious illness because, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to limit your life. That's usually the diagnosis codes when we're having our regional, our, our registry list is people whose life expectancy may be about a year is kind of what they're thinking is the pool that's pulled by that algorithm that looks at charts, you know, and who knows, like as if yeah, there was any way to know that specifically. But, it, you know, somebody who feels like they're, they're facing some limitations of illness, about 20% of our our patient base, once we've had a palliative care consult, will ultimately leave with hospice once they discharge from the hospital. So 80% of our patients are going to continue living and doing well and seeking treatments and wanting support for maximizing medications and lifestyle ways to make sure they're living the best life they can, the quality they can. Um, so, And then as far as pain goes... One of the things we do as a team is we're tasked with doing a symptom assessment checklist. And so I, we initially we all kind of were like, oh, gosh, we've got to ask these kind of nosy questions just to get in the door. And then it's become a really good thing. I actually look forward to asking the questions because it gives me a foot in the door to say I'm here as part of a medical specialty and part of our work is pain and symptom management. Would you mind if I ask you a few questions? And their pain is a 0 to 10 scale pain. Um, nausea, shortness of breath, appetite, um, drowsiness, depression, anxiety, constipation, and overall well-being, which is not my favorite question because it's hard to quantify. But um, asking those questions, for people who are nonverbal or limitedly so, we have a zero to zero ten, either absent or present, and sometimes I observe pain. Somebody's breathing rapidly. I think that's an observed sign of pain, and I'm going to ask the nurse for from uh, what the meds are available, or I'll, the physician on our team will look at what's available to them. Um, and then talking about pain, you know, existential pain is real, and it certainly contributes. You know, it, it physically manifests itself in people's body. You can see, um, you can see signs of that. I mean, it was a family of a, a person who ultimately died yesterday, but she was on our service for a couple of weeks. And one of her daughters 
had chosen to be a mother rather than a professional person, but the other four daughters had chosen professional pathways. And I was talking to the family about, is there anything that needs to be said, anything that hasn't been said? The, the patient herself had had a hard night, and the family had been really reticent to use morphine because they'd had, they felt like, and so this is so often the case, the use of morphine is going to hasten a person's demise when, you know, that's, a, this is a teensy dose, it was like one milligram, it was very small. So, so I went in and asked, you know, okay, let's talk about her pain. What do you, how do you think she's doing today? She looked comfortable to the eye. Her respirations are less than 20. I'm kind of looking at the clock and counting respirations at the same time. I'm having this conversation. And, um, and I'm looking for things like clenched faces, you know, anything that you would normally observe for somebody who's uncomfortable. And then I'm also talking to the family about their own experiences of pain. What do they notice about her? And then this daughter who'd had... I'm pointing here because she was standing to my left when we first started talking. It just, I said, is there anything that's unresolved or things that you want to be talking about? And then she brought this up and, and cried for a while. And it came out that she had talked to her mom and her mom had said to her, I know I've been hard on you and I'm sorry. And that as the, the <coughs> patient herself had gotten more and more into her dementia, she'd gotten more agreeable. And would, you know, just kind of forget that she'd been kind of a hard, tough nut when she was a younger, driven career professional. And they had had a sort of detente place where they'd agreed that you do you, I'll do me, and we're okay. And by telling the story of the experience of being in pain about choosing the pathway of motherhood that was different than her own mother's pathway, and then kind of coming to the... But we had an understanding. There was this kind of almost physical sense in the room of energy rising and then beginning to fall again as she cried and kind of let it out and one of the sisters had brought in donuts and they had a moment of levity that kind of softened the conversation uh, and then we ended up doing a, a prayer together and um, we actually did an anointing which is something I had I don't do an awful lot of um, but a secular one I had I had some um, oil with me and we, we I had them bless her head and bless her you know, the, the, her mouth that had said so many words and you know, her hands that had held them and things. But there was a kind of catharsis. and I, so, so being able to read the room again and watch for signs that say that there's pain and kind of an existential pain that's there and then naming it and observing it and saying, I see you, I see that this value has been important to you. Um, how can we support you in, in what do you need, what would be helpful to you at this moment in time? How can you talk about it with your mom if there's anything unresolved? That's just one case example. Um, but also being an advocate for good pain management, people who are suffering needlessly so. There's such a misunderstanding of opioid use at the end of life. People say, I don't want to get addicted. But then, you know, I mean, if, if you know, you've got a terminal diagnosis you may have increasing need to take medication, but it may be the, very, the time when it's medically necessary to do so, to, to, you know, to be able to live your life and do the things you love. So talking about that in a way that's accepting and open and not freak out about medications that are appropriate. Yeah, yeah Beth. What would you like to say about people who are in pain, severe pain, and in recovery. In recovery. That's, that's really important to talk about, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I know there are varying... Um, thanks. Put it down here. For me, the, the feeling of being 
on opioids or being mm-hmm. high or whatever is really painful. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's helpful. Um, so I think naming it, so we need to be, it, it also is uh, incumbent upon the person themselves to say, I'm a person who doesn't do well with substances. Can we talk about uh, medications that you may be choosing for me? And then asking, can, are there non-narcotic, do you have Tylenol, IV Tylenol we could be using here? Like naming, this is my need. It's really important to me to do my very best to avoid that. Uh, or my family member or whomever we're, we're, we're working with. That's, that's important. Um, I think physicians are doing a better job, at least palliative care physicians who have a complex understanding of pain medications because symptom management is important. I know all the physicians on our team are well-versed in substance abuse and are very attentive to not using things in people who have a substance abuse history if they can possibly avoid it. Um, Especially if somebody is nearing the end of their life and they're having a hard time breathing, having a conversation with the patient, the person may no longer be able to speak for themselves, but talking to family about, you know, we're seeing signs of pain, but we also know that she doesn't want to use medications. How do you feel about our trying, uh, you know, all the non-narcotic things we can first, and then we'll have another conversation down the road if we just don't see the signs of pain being lessened. And naming it in an advanced healthcare directive, please speak with my family. If, if you are discussing narcotics or the use of medications that may be addictive, please discuss with my agent, my healthcare agent first before proceeding. Things like that. That's, that's the kind of things I'm thinking about. Yeah. Really important to have in the dialogue. I have a question. Yeah, Gail. Yeah. What, what role does the chaplain have or could have when um, a family's religious beliefs uh, says they sh- shouldn't have certain medical care or certain be treated in a certain way, but the doctors feel that this is the way to go? And What's, what's, your, what's the chaplain's role? Yeah, uh, to, well, to be an advocate, I, I'm looking at that. When I open a patient's chart, the, well, maybe all, not always the first thing, but certainly in the first five things is to see their faith identity to see any evidence for that, I search the chart. I type in the word uh, faith, spirit, hope, fear, worry into the box because uh, that draws up uh, information about what their background might be if somebody is identified as being Jehovah's Witness and I know blood products may be something they don't want. That's going to be really important to lift that up for other providers and talk about it, that we need to make sure we're speaking with family or the patient themselves about their what what possibilities. I think you were with at the last ethics committee meeting. We talked about uh, somebody who had been offered a transplant who opted not to have the transplant because the use that transplant while that may have been life-saving would have meant they had to use blood products and the person said no. I choose not to have the organ transplant. I think you may agree that in the room there was sort of a sense of, wow, really? You know, people would really stand by their tradition and say no to an organ transplant. But there wasn't a, like, well, that's stupid. It was sort of, like, interesting, surprising. Not how I'd be, but, you know, okay. So being an advocate when there's a a medical choice that might be faith-related, Orthodox Jews and um, making sure food restrictions might be observed, if in any possible way we can support that. Um, Christian scientists, I have a very close friend who's a Christian scientist, and, you know, so I'm always go out of my way to visit people who might be in the hospital who have 
traditions that don't always fit well with the medical system to say, how are you and is there anything we can be doing, anything you need, so that we're talking about it right up front. I can. I mean, that sounds great to be an advocate for the patient and and educate the doctors or the medical staff about their needs and situation. Do you ever find yourself in the other direction that you're kind of an advocate for the medical system and oh, you yeah. have a conversation with them? You know, your religion. I mean, you don't say it this way, but you, you engage them with their religious views and say, "Well, you know, maybe you'd have to take into account that mm-hmm. that's not the wisest thing to do." Or do you ever mm-hmm. have it that direction? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, when you first started speaking, I thought, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. I certainly, because the doctors and the medical team are my friends now, you know, I, I see the wisdom in what they're saying. And sometimes family will say, well, it's all in God's hands. Or, oh, my, the one that, I, that still sends up a flag for me is, God never gives us more than we can handle. And I think, oh, that's a load of hooey in my book. <laughs> Like, I don't like that saying, that kind of God, your God, that's not my God, you know, um, or any ultimate meaning that I would ascribe. So, yeah, I, in that case, I catch myself in thinking, okay, you know, you just said something that I'm like, hmm. But then I think, but that's not my job, you know, there are plenty of people in the world who have views I don't agree with, but I can still take their perspective and try to walk with them in it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it shows especially. I mean, I try really hard when the God gives, you know, because I know for them, if they're saying God never gives me more than I can handle, they're trying to say, I can do this. I can get through this tough time. There's something bigger than me. There's something more than just this story in time. And there's hope. I've got hope. So I never want to be the one to say, your theology is a load of hooey and therefore there's no hope for you. <laughs> you know, that would never be, I mean, there's just, there's no point in that conversation. So I park it and then later on when I'm with the team, I say, oh, I noticed that they said that line and that's not my favorite. And then here's how I made sense of it for myself. So yeah, I definitely stand inside the medical system a fair amount and I notice it. Try to be aware of, if, and if I'm falling over, if I'm in a, family meeting and I'm falling over the line into advocating for what the doctors are we try really hard not to have an agenda but sometimes there's only like two choices and one seems like a better fit you know that I feel like I've read the chart I know the situation this one seems like the obvious choice but then there's resistance over here and I think well who am I how do I I don't really know (laughs) so yeah catching myself if I'm in that place is important I know my time is just about to an end I've really enjoyed talking with you all it's been a wonderful conversation I it's I'm the only chaplain at Redwood City right now so anytime I'm with people who do what I do in some way or connected that's that's a good day so we do we do have a custom here for all these years it uh, it was started by Jennifer Block for the guest speakers or guest chaplains, and that is to ask them at the end, um, what do you wish you, uh, when you started doing chaplaincy, what do you know now that you wish you had known then? Oh. <sighs> Gratitude is a spiritual practice that'll, that'll sustain you through tough times. Naming what you're grateful for at the end of every day. My spouse and I, before we go to sleep every night, say three things that we appreciate about each other uh, that we've noticed throughout the day. And, you know, there are days when I 
don't see him till the very end of the day. But that gratitude practice and noticing the good, even in the midst of really awful, is something that'll carry you a really long way. Yeah. Well, we're grateful to you for coming here. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. so Thank much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a 15-minute break. We'll start in here. and uh, let's, uh, How about that um, 2.55? A little bit more than 15 minutes. So, thank you all. <laughs>